Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I want to tell the story of John Howard Yoder and use his theology and his personality and the particular personality quirks he had to work out a kind of psychotheological understanding of how faith or belief, especially in a kind of perverted version, might then be reflected in a perverted understanding. The project then, uh, the psychotheological analysis of John Howard Yoder, the anatomy of perversion, because John Howard Yoder, in fact, was one of the premier thinkers among the Mennonite churches of America. Uh, Ruth Elizabeth Crawl says, to my knowledge, no American Mennonite scholar has looked critically at John Howard Yoder's written and taught theology and system of ethics through the lenses of his harassing behavior from 1970 until his death in 1997. And this would have been the years of his greatest academic productivity in the years then of his sexual misconduct. He worked closing the gap between the Christian walk, living the Christian life, that is theologically he's going to do that, and Christian thought. His entire effort then is a replacement for an abstract theological methodology. And what I want to suggest is that to take his thought as entirely successful may be a bit misleading because, in fact, his own Christian walk had a, had a serious gap in it, the point of his theology in refusing scholasticism and Constantinianism is really the alternative to an ontotheology or a theology which presumes to be able to establish theology on some philosophical ground. And so he turns from metaphysical speculation, he brings ethics back into the heart of theology. Practice is key, and he advocated then a holistic ecclesiology that would equate the church and Christian life then with an alternative culture. It's uh, Yoder that really gives inspiration to both James McClendon and Stanley Hauerwas. And these then have made his theology part of mainstream theological thought. Both of them, in fact, may be more widely known than Yoder was ever known, but I think both would attribute, and in fact do attribute, their own theological understanding to Yoder. And I would say the same thing about my own theological understanding, that it's been profoundly shaped. I've used his books in my classes and development of my ideas, and it's at the heart of a lot of my own thought, and that's perhaps why I'm so interested. I'm not interested in just giving a critique because there is a deep appreciation for, for Yoder. But Yoder has left us a mixed and confusing legacy that only in the past year or so, more than 15 years after his death, is being addressed by his own 
Mennonite denomination in the seminary where he spent his, most of his career. Yoder explains this, and in typical Yoder fashion, as I'm doing this talk, I'm sitting here looking at a photograph, um, the Mennonite uh, goatee, the, the long hair, the dark rim glasses, the serious kind of humorless look that uh, Stanley Howarth, one of his closest friends, describes that Yoder was without humor, that he was deeply serious, incapable perhaps of triviality. So Yoder's misconduct is something that he himself undertakes in a very conscious fa fashion. He says that he conducted an experiment in non-genital touching and the women who were the subjects of these experiments, more than a hundred in recent count that have come forward, describe unwanted sexual advances ranging from public sexual harassment, aggression, to stalking, to indecent exposure. In short, John Howard Yoder, the premier theological ethicist of the 20th century, and I'm using this term as it's advanced, a technical term that doesn't sound technical, but is used in psychoanalysis by Freud, Lacan, Zizek, and is not meant simply as a, a derogation, but is a, a pervert, and this word then, as I unfold this, has a very particular meaning, and I think that Yoder's not only his personality, but I'm afraid that his theology is going to take on the characteristics of this perversion. But as of now, there are two distinct realms dealing with Yoder. There's one that honors his legacy with conferences and lectureships and essays. But then there is the growing documentation of his sexual harassment and an outcry against the silence engineered by his seminary and denomination. The critical assessment, as Kroll has pointed out, of his theology, for the most part, has not been viewed in conjunction with his sexual perversion. And so that's what I want to do. Given Yoder's own theological holism and narrative approach to theology, so well developed by James McClendon, the duration of his experiment in genital or non-genital touching and the widespread nature of his experiment and the fact that he defended his actions. He defended his actions on at several levels, uh, formally before the Mennonite board that uh, came to review him, before the board of trustees at his seminary. It would seem both necessary and easy to link his sexual proclivities to a failure of thought, because he himself is describing his experiment as an outworking of his theology, and so by his own standards. And what I would call, though, his violence, and he wouldn't use this word, but his violence toward women and his long-term moral failure would seem to indicate an inherent and obvious problem, not just in the character of the man, which is clear, but in the character of his theology, which Yoder would not want to separate, and I think he's correct, and that's part of the point of this exercise, is to say that the one is definitively reflected in the other. And so the notion that one's belief system or worldview can be read from one's action 
that's inherent to the teaching of Jesus, right? That the Jesus links the, the mouth and the heart in Matthew 15, 18. Slavoj Zizek's link between the philosophical and psychoanalytical provides the concrete tools, I believe, for apprehending the nature of the psychological structure behind the particular orientations and behaviors Yoder displays. Zizek gives us two primary personality structures or sub subjective structures. One would be called hysteria, which in this instance sounds pejorative, but actually uh, it's the privileged understanding. And the other is perversion. But these are not simply psychological orientations, but as Zizek does, he identifies philosophical systems. Hegel, for example, he considers the most sublime of hysterics. And it's originally Jacques Lacan's point that perversion does not refer so much to abnormal sexual practices as to a structure in which the subject sides with the law in the attempt to escape its punishing effect and to partake of its surplus enjoyment. The point of the perverse pleasure is that it's not a, a pleasure directly enjoyed, but it's a pleasure enjoyed on behalf of the law. And so the pervert that would expose himself, or in the case of, of uh, Yoder, that there's something else happening. In a, a psychoanalytic understanding, it is a disavowal of castration or a disavowal of anything lacking. That is, castration is not simply about the genitals, but is about the belief that the father in some way or authority is vested somewhere else. And so once pa one passes through the castration complex, there is the sense then that the law, the father, the authority figures, whatever that might be, in some way contains the power. And so the pervert takes it upon himself to complete or cover up what he perceives as in some way lacking in the law, in the father figure. The pervert seeks to completely establish the law through a transgressive relationship to the law. So the way that the Apostle Paul will put this, sinning so as to increase grace, Shall we sin that grace may abound, or merging law and sin, you know, is the law sin? That is, that in this understanding, sin, or transgression, is one side of the coin of the law, that uh, the two sides do not act independently, but are dependent upon each other. The hermeneutical tools that would draw these two realms, the, you know, the practical orientation of sexuality, the theoretical aspects of thought together, they're largely lacking in theology. And so what I would claim about what I'm doing is that it is a kind of theological exercise, but it's calling upon, it's bringing other tools to, it's bringing psychoanalytic tools. Yoder, in particular, lends such weight to ethics and ecclesiology together as an explanation for anthropology. Some have said, though, that his theology is completely lacking in a moral psychology. 
so that theologically and personally Yoder had little interest in issues of subjectivity. And this is where the Stanley Horowitz's observations of Yoder are quite interesting. Horowitz has always emphasized his need for friendship and his feeling that John Howard Yoder was one of his close friends. Horowitz says that Yoder has shaped his own thought, and so it's interesting that the warm character that uh, Horowitz displays in his own writing and speaking, that he attempts to describe his own understanding. He says, "I, I, I do not give, I don't give a damn about subjectivity. What Howarth misses is that his account of friendship comes with notions of subjectivity that I think are diametrically counter to what Yoder is describing. That, that is, that Yoder really doesn't have much interest in the depths of human personality. That Howarth always you know, felt like that the, the relationship was something of a one-way relationship. I think he's not mistaken in that. So in this, some of the best of theology is working blind when it comes to a robust account, inclusive of human sexuality, human personality, of the structure of the human subject. Uh, Maybe we should say the structure of the sinful human subject. That is, there's a failure in subjectivity. That, are, that we can specify, we can understand through the New Testament by bringing together a critical but appreciative account of Yoder with Zizek's reading of the New Testament. I believe that uh, we can take give, use Yoder as a kind of worked example of how the sinful, sinful subject might be accounted for in theology. That is, the failure to name sin, to be able to identify the subject of, of sin, is going to show itself in the characteristic failures of theology. And if we cannot name the systemic distortion, it's not simply that we cannot resist this personally, but we cannot resist it theologically. So the project here is to identify the structure that shows itself, I believe, in the dual aspects of the man, the character of the man, John Howard Yoder, and in the theology of Yoder. Stanley Horowitz says, I think what is most destructive for living truthful and good lives is not what we do, but the justification we give for what we do to hide from ourselves what we have done. There is a long tradition, you know, I believe, beginning from the New Testament through Irenaeus, through a whole uh, understanding of the atonement that understands sin exactly as Horowitz is describing it here, as a system of deception. Horowitz says, too often the result of this is a life lived in which we cannot acknowledge or recognize who we are. And so it's, it's interesting that Stanley Horowitz, the good friend of John Howard Yoder, has produced a profound sense of the depth of self-deception. And he understood how that applied, I would think, to his friend, but he's not worked that out. He seems to have missed 
the structural nature of the deception. That is, he's, dis he's named the deception in a general sense, but I believe we can begin to locate it. And the, the name for the deception in Yoder's theology, perversion, is the notion that law, or the symbolic realm, by symbolic we mean language or the normative use of any kind of authoritative systems, this symbolic realm in, that encompasses, in the end, all of reality, that we can detect then the perversion. For example, in science, Newtonian theory, with its notion of absolute laws of nature, and in theology, ontotheology, with its no notion that theological explanation is all-encompassing, would both be perverse. So perversion is the notion that the law or the symbolic encompasses all of reality. As with Newtonian science, which of course would stand in opposition to Einsteinian science, what gets left out is an account of the scientist or the observer. That is, the Newtonian imagines, or up until Einsteinian science, there was in science in general, the understanding that Newton says it all. In theology, in an ontotheology likewise, the theologian does not account for his own situatedness, but presumes to speak from a godlike point of view. Yoder's theology opposed this sort of philosophical foundationalism. But in assuming the subject is accounted for in ethics, the subject is reduced uh, with his emotions. You know, what, what do we mean by subject? His emotions, his interiority, his empathy, perhaps even uh, key elements of his humanity. In Yoder, I'm afraid that he's reduced by leaving this interiority out to the choices that he makes, to the symbolic realm. I'm describing here then a very particular personality type that I think Yoder uh, exemplifies. He exemplifies this uh, sort of theology in that he sees reality primarily in terms of a theoretical or a theological understanding, that is, that uh, for Yoder, I believe not just in his character, but in his theology, that what is showing through as a perversion is the subject is reduced to his thought, to the choices he makes, in the realm of thought primarily. I'll work this out a bit below. In this, uh, Hauerwas, in his memorial essay on Yoder in First Things, relates one of his stor favorite stories about his friend that I think is telling in this regard. The interviewer asked John if he enjoyed his theological significance. That is, he, he has a relative amount of fame, that is. He says, oh, time has passed me by. The questioner notes that he says this without feeling. I won't strategize making sure I get my monument, Yoder says. The interviewer, failing in his effort to get Yoder to be introspective, tried again asking him if he was happy. He says, I haven't found it very useful to ask that question. But John conceded he was thankful. So far, our children haven't hurt their parents much. I have tenure, and I don't think I'll run out of Anabaptist sources. As Howard puts it, here is classic Yoder, without feeling, 
simultaneously off-putting. He's alienating to the interviewer. He's refusing introspection and completely utilitarian in a thankfulness not related to happiness. This snippet is simultaneously, I think, indicative of his ecclesiology, which is his anthropology, or perhaps lack of anthropology. His personality, you know, odd, frustrating, and his low regard theologically and personally for the affective registers, happiness, delight, warmth, etc. I think the two things come together. As Howard puts it, Charm and John Howard Yoder were antithetical. Due to his intellect as well as his shyness and personal awkwardness, he often seemed alone. Though Howard says he was his friend, it was always a friendship he had to work at. I think I was one of John Yoder's closest friends, but Howard says I have no idea what that meant. I loved John Yoder. I think he loved me. For Howard's depth of friendship is a key part of his theology. But what he seems to miss is that this warmth is not reciprocated by Yoder. In Howard's own description, he shows that this is the case. The very structure of Yoder's theology and of his personality were bent in another direction. Perhaps we can get this from the politics of Jesus, from, which is a, a, a purely political Jesus. But I will come to this in my second talk on Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.